first of all, there's the obvious issue of sort of the, the positive spillover effects. If we can get 5G, a large enough platform of 5G deployed out there, you see all sorts of benefits to productivity growth. Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I handle outreach at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. And in this particular episode, we're going to be talking about 5G and wireless innovation. 5G is going to help drive economic growth for decades to come. But in our view, we need a comprehensive national strategy to ensure robust deployment and adoption of secure networks. We brought in the big guns for this conversation. That's right. The brilliant Doug Brake of ITIF. I'm sure you've heard of him. I have, yes. Doug Brake is Director of Broadband and Spectrum Policy at ITIF and writes extensively on topics such as next-generation wireless, rural broadband infrastructure, and net neutrality. He's here today to talk about his recent report, A U.S. National Strategy for 5G and Future Wireless Innovation. And Doug frequently humors my extremely elementary questions about telecom policy, so he's very kind and brave to have accepted this invitation. Thanks for being here, Doug. Oh, absolutely. It's an honor. I appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast. So I'm going to start off with a question that I know might seem silly for you and Rob, but the rest of us may not totally understand. What is 5G? Oh, sure. Yeah, no, a lot of people, I feel like, can be a little confused over what exactly 5G is. I mean, the short, simple answer is that it's just the next generation of wireless technology. This is we had, you know, 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G. This is the next step. It's really a cluster of recent developments in wireless technology that are all stitched together by a new wireless standard called uh, New Radio or NR, which is a apt if uh, not not so creative name. But, the, but this transition going from 4G, the LTE standard, to this new radio, this sort of new language that your phone uses to talk to the cell tower, means a transition in new phones, new devices, new equipment on cell towers. So it's a big change through the entire industry, a big leap from 4G to the next generation of 5G. Doug, there's a lot of hype out there about 5G. There's a lot of hype out there, frankly, about a lot of technologies. But I think 5G is probably at the, the, the top of the Gartner hype cycle, if you will. You know, you hear things like you can download a 4K movie in three seconds, you can uh, have robotic surgery. I, I even read once that the U.S. at risks falling behind on 5G because we're not going to be able to fire our missiles in the South Asian Sea. Can't do that anyway because you don't have radio spectrum there. But at the same time, it's 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 not just an incremental shift from 4G. It's something bigger. So what, what's really the reality behind that? No, you're you're right. It's true. I, I do worry that there is a risk that 5G has been oversold, at least in, in some circles, or sort of misunderstood. But but it really is an exciting platform, right? Even if it's at the top of the Gartner hype cycle, and maybe there's some sort of uh, realigned expectations that we're going to go through, eventually, you know, once it's adopted and out there, there, there really are some tremendous advantages to it. I think the best way to think about it is it's really a much more flexible platform compared to 4G. 4G can do one thing really well, mobile broadband, mobile broadband to a cell phone. It can do that really well. But 5G is able to make 
trade-offs and obscure sort of technical characteristics in order to perform very well for, for different types of applications. If you want distributed Internet of Things connections where you have just a tiny sip of data every day or so, but you want to have a battery life that could last a decade, it can tailor the connection to do that. If you want to have you know, augmented reality with really high throughput with a lot of sort of image recognition, a lot of battery intensive processing that you can put in the cloud right next to right next to the cell tower, it can do that much better than you can do over LTE. The talk about robotic surgery, it doesn't sound very realistic. At least I would not be signing up anytime soon to, to have robotic surgery at a distance on myself. But I think it's more used as an example of the level of confidence people have in the technology, that the connection will be, will be secure and will work, and the low level of latency where you're able to control very delicate processes with a very tight, tight time schedule. I think one of the things that sometimes people miss is we, the U.S., led in 4G, what was the LTE standard, which almost all of us have on our phones now. And it was, if you can go back and remember 3G, LTE was so much better. And that really was the enabling platform for all of these great applications that we live with and enjoy today. For example, Uber and Lyft, those really would have been much harder applications in, in 3G. So we created this platform and then it enabled American internet companies to really innovate on top of that. And that's why I think there's a lot of concern today about the U.S. not falling behind, particularly China, because this is a platform, it enables innovation all around it. So how do you think the U.S. is doing on, on this, particularly compared to China, but also other regions like Europe? I think part of it, it depends on what you're measuring, like sort of there, there are different flavors of 5G, different components to it. But at a high level, I'd say the U.S. is doing quite well, especially when it comes to the sort of initial deployment. The number of companies have invested a tremendous amount of private capital in order to deploy, at least begin on the initial deployments of 5G. Part of it is a question about the particular type of spectrum companies are using. The U.S. in particular, and this is maybe getting a little, a little technical, but the U.S. in particular is leading the rest of the world when it comes to high band spectrum. This is a, a new type of spectrum that previously was not thought to be very useful for mobile communications. The U.S. is way out in front in allocating this spectrum for 5G, and companies are already starting to build, build out on this, on this spectrum. Initial use cases for this are, are mainly for the, the fixed wireless to the home I and mean, seeing increased competition with fixed wireless or fixed broadband to the home. It's, a, I think, a wonderful story of uh, dynamic competition. In other regards, particularly when it comes to the manufacturing of, of uh, equipment for 5G, the U.S., we can get into later on, does not have its own equipment manufacturer. So in that regard, it's it's somewhat behind. But when it comes to leadership and developing the foundational technology, the underlying technology, and actually getting the systems out there, we're, we're up there with the best of them. In your report, you call for a national strategy for 5G. Can you talk about why this is necessary? Need a national strategy for a handful of reasons. First of all, there's the obvious issue, sort of the, the positive spillover effects. If we can get 5G, a large enough platform of 5G deployed out there, you see all sorts of benefits to productivity growth and productivity growth in traded sectors, if you can get you know really smart agriculture to boost our trade and agricultural products. I mean, there are all, all sorts of opportunities to, to boost economic growth in, uh, in a wide variety of sectors. 
So if you can get the platform out there early and gain those uh, competitive advantage, it's a, it's a huge boon. There's also this sort of chicken and egg problem where part of what drives the adoption of 5G networks is the demand for these new applications. But it's difficult to develop the new applications that really take advantage of the leap in performance without already having the network out there. And so there's this potential mismatch in supply and demand. And so policy can help advance that that flywheel, get that spinning in order to, to see the development of applications that drives the demand, that drives the investment. There's also this bucket of worms around Huawei and potential security risk that I think deserves a more unified, more constructive policy response. So far, a response from the U.S. government has been somewhat scattered, I think it's fair to say, somewhat disjointed with a range of different policy responses from different bodies within the U.S. government. So what should a national strategy consist of? We kind of break it down. A national strategy for for 5G should consist of really three kind of general buckets of issues. One is the deployment of 5G. One is the adoption. And then there's this whole issue around security, China, and the sort of ongoing long-term wireless innovation. Sure, deployment, there are two real obvious policy levers for trying to advance 5G deployment. First is spectrum policy, and the second is infrastructure policy. So spectrum policy, as I mentioned, the U.S. is is really a leader when it comes to the deployment or the, the allocation, really, of of high band spectrum, of millimeter wave spectrum, but it really could do with additional mid-band spectrum in the pipeline. Long story short, you have different flavors of spectrum with different physical characteristics. Low band spectrum tends to have great coverage, but relatively little bandwidth, relatively little throughput, whereas high band spectrum on the other end has tremendous capacity for, for download speeds, right? Great amount of bandwidth but just the physical limitations of the spectrum, it doesn't, doesn't go very far, doesn't, doesn't get through buildings quite as well. And this mid-band spectrum is really in the sweet spot that leverages new breakthroughs in antenna technology to, to really have the best of both worlds of coverage and, and capacity. So getting more mid-band spectrum out to commercial users should be a real priority. There are some options on the table, but I I think it would be great if those could be accelerated. In the same vein, infrastructure policy, part of the transition to 5G is this move towards an architecture of more densely deployed networks of small cells. So smaller, less obtrusive, but certainly more numerous small cell towers, small cells, they call them. So much of our infrastructure policy that governs the deployment of wireless towers and cell sites on top of buildings was written with the assumption that, you know, we're talking about a 200 foot tall cell tower, not, you know, something that's the the size of a smoke detector or a pizza box or something like that. And so a rethinking of a lot of our infrastructure policy, and this is at the federal uh, down to the local level, I think is warranted to help speed the deployment. Doug, on that question, you know, if you compare us with China, China has had it as a national goal that they're going to lead the world in 5G, at least deployment. And they don't let the local governments really decide this. They tell the local government, if you want all the perks that come from Beijing, you better get this deployment out there as soon as possible. There's no worries about, oh, we better slow this down. Or there's no, there's no Chinese governments that are saying, oh, let's see if we can raise taxes on China Mobile and get a bunch of money out of it. They're just going 
going whole hog at it because the central government told them they have to. Can you compare that to the U.S. where it's much more decentralized? You've got a lot of mayors out there who look at this as a cash cow. They don't, don't really care whether they're charging money and fees and the like. They don't really care if they're slowing it down that much. How are we going to deal with that? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. There's a real stark difference between the sort of general structure under which U.S. operators deploy this technology under compared to those in China. You're exactly right, where you know China is able to just sort of steamroll this equipment out there, and they have moved quickly in doing so as well. In the U.S., right, we have this issue where, especially in sort of wealthier, more tech-forward cities, mayors can sometimes see this as an opportunity to, to extract fees on wireless cell siting applications where they know like if, if they can set the, the fee level so high, then operators will still want to deploy there, right? Demand's still high enough, but it, the fee gets passed on to the operator that then has to recoup that through its entire footprint. So you have a, a real problem where the local interest doesn't always align with, with the uh, national interests. Also, just from a sort of governance standpoint, can sometimes get pushback at a local level on issues that are not always so legitimate. There's, you know, some conspiracy theories out there related to 5G and COVID, just sort of really off the wall concerns. I send them all to you. (laughs) Yes, I appreciate the the constant flow of memes. I hope you haven't missed any. I'm happy to send more memes your way if you need them. Keeps me entertained uh, and sane, but... uh, but yeah, no, so you get this sort of ground up pushback, even on issues that are not, you know, really well founded in, in the science or in reality, really. Uh, but, you know, mayors and city councils have to deal with these local concerns. And so finding a way to, to streamline this process would, uh, would benefit us all in the long run. What about adoption, the second part of your plan? As I mentioned, you you know, we've got this kind of chicken and egg problem where to really see the biggest benefit from 5G, some of those applications take advantage of the real gains in performance we see between 4G and 5G. Those require kind of R&D and development in their own right. When we're talking about you know, sophisticated manufacturing processes being augmented by digital twins run in a you know, local cloud infrastructure on the side of a factory, or something like that, right? Like these are really advanced technologies that require a lot of R&D in their own right. And so I think any sort of policies that can help advance along a wide range of different emerging technologies, artificial intelligence, advanced manufacturing, smart cities, to help drive the demand for this sort of large platform of wireless connectivity will help us in the long run. Really every agency should have a strategy for encouraging the adoption within their sort of own industry area, as well as within their own processes. Oftentimes, the government can be a a strong first adopter with these sorts of technologies. It seems like this is even more urgent now with COVID kind of changing the way that we really exist. We went into this with Blair Levin and Larry Downs in episode five, kind of following up on a recent paper that they released. And we can link that in the show notes because they referenced your report too. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, no, those guys are very thoughtful. Yeah, no, and that's absolutely right. The sooner we can get robust wireless 5G networks out there, the more connectivity we'll have, especially in these days of of social distancing. It's incredibly important. Security. Rob has lots of thoughts. We need security. (laughs) We do, yes. Yeah. Now, obviously, this is the big kahuna because... 
not just the Trump administration, but the, quote, five eyes intelligence services of our allies have all asserted that the Huawei or ZTE equipment is, is not secure and open to hacking or spying. And therefore, the U.S. government has banned Huawei equipment here, as I think most people know. Uh, the Canadians decided to go with uh, European providers. What's going on there? How, would, how does that ban affect our ability to deploy? Those sorts of questions. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's it's a whole big can of worms, right? I mean, there's a lot of concern around the continued rise of of Huawei that really now is a global tech juggernaut, and particularly where it comes to its high performance and low cost equipment in the in the radio, what's called the radio access network. I mean, there's equipment um, in recent years, and the market's down to Huawei, Ericsson, and Nokia. So there's sort of this, this long-term concern that if you have just a handful of suppliers of this type of equipment, at some point corner the, the global market for this particular type of equipment. So this has raised all sorts of security concerns, concerns around you know, risk and long-term big can of worms. There is a, a, a real concern, right, that Huawei, which now is, is really a global tech juggernaut, has seen a tremendous gain in market share, particularly in this one piece of equipment, a very important piece of equipment for the for the network, radio access network equipment. So that that part of, of the market is really down to three major providers, Ericsson, Nokia, and Huawei. And smaller providers, also ZTE, Samsung has made a made a play, but it's but the really three major providers. Huawei has seen continued gains, has grown its market share tremendously, continuing to pour a tremendous amount of capital into R&D, and is, I should mention, bolstered by numerous unfair trade and trade practices on the part of China, as well as uh, subsidies, illegal subsidies. Especially when Ericsson and Nokia, you know, as great companies as they are, are on somewhat shaky financial footing, there's at least this potential, right, that Huawei could continue to gain market share and, and eventually corner the, the global market if, uh, if things go unchanged. So this presents all sorts of security questions, right? I mean, there's the acute sort of short-term security risk, like do you really want the critical infrastructure of your country to be run by a company that is at least under the jurisdiction, the control of one of our primary geopolitical rivals? So there's this sort of short-term risk of IP theft or espionage or potentially even sabotage. That, that that is out there that right is circulating the policy conversation. There's also this sort of long-term innovation or competitiveness economic challenge. If Huawei continues to to gain market share unchanged, and other two providers uh, continue to lose market share, and what that means. So there's there's a lot of policy questions around that. And to my mind, it's best to sort of break those challenges down to have when you think about the short-term security risk. The real easy answer there is to just not use Huawei equipment in the United States and try to convince like-minded allies to to not use it as well so that there's a sufficient sufficiently large market for for the sort of trusted network equipment vendors to be able to participate but longer term we need to work on innovations that can help move us towards a, an ecosystem with a more diverse uh, and a broader number of different suppliers for radio access network equipment a lot of important questions around. Doug, I think, as you know, ITF is going to be releasing a new report very shortly 
looking at the effect of Chinese innovation mercantilism in the telecom equipment industry, so particularly as it, as it has affected Huawei and ZTE, and looking at this question of how has it affected innovation around the world. And we come to a very clear and stark conclusion that these policies have actually hurt innovation. Uh, Huawei is big, but when you really dig into the numbers, the, for example, standard essential patents as a share of revenue, standards contributions as a share of revenue, R&D as a share of revenue. Huawei is a laggard. ZTE is a laggard. Uh, companies like Ericsson, Nokia, and even Samsung. Samsung's incredibly innovative in these measures. So I know there are some European carriers who say, oh, we can't ban Huawei because we're going to end up with a duopoly. I actually think that's completely wrong. We'll end up with a triopoly, if you will. Samsung would, would gain market share, and we'd have three very innovative companies. But that's, I think, one of the big challenges right now. You have a lot of carriers, particularly in Europe, who are really looking at the short term. Uh, they just want cheap networks. They, frankly, not as interested in getting better networks and, and more innovative networks. And so I think that's really one of the big challenges in this space. The U.S., as you pointed out, isn't in that space. We've already made that decision. We're going to go with a foreign carrier like Ericsson or Nokia or Samsung. Part of the challenge, too, especially for Eastern European countries, is there's been a real difficulty in getting existing LTE network, existing 4G network that is built by Huawei to communicate with new 5G equipment built by other vendors. I think this is kind of an underappreciated challenge. This is why I think you saw the, the policies out of the UK allowing for 35% of the network to be supplied by Huawei. And I think that you'll continue to see that in some European countries, particularly Eastern European countries that have significant amount of Huawei 4G equipment. And so I think the, the goal should be to offer an alternative to something that works better for these countries, for the operators that already have Huawei equipment that can provide an alternative that isn't just the, the same old game of traditional radio access network equipment. And that's where, to my mind, the, the open RAN is what they call it, is where you have the interfaces between different parts of that equipment are openly standardized and defined. And so you can have different companies specialize in different components of it, a much more modular system. And also some of those pieces of equipment can be run over basically commercial server infrastructure, can be virtualized and run in software. And I think this is the answer to see a much more diverse ecosystem in this particular area of equipment that I think will lead to faster pace innovation and lower cost deployment, lower cost for, for network operators, and also make it much more difficult for Huawei to eventually corner corner this market. Just as a last point there, that is one of the U.S. strengths. We haven't done as well in telecom hardware. We still have Cisco, uh, which is more enterprise hardware. We are doing well in software and Open RAN as a software application. So maybe that plays to our strengths. So one final fun question. If Congress were to invest an extra $100 billion on technology, what should it do with that money? Man, $100 billion. Are we talking $100 billion just for 5G? That would be that would be a fantastic. Well, you can, yeah, you can decide what it does. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, 5G, right, It's it should be private sector-led, private sector-driven. At the same time, you're always going to have a section of rural America where the economics just don't make sense for private capital to, to try to seek a return there. 
So at least a chunk of that 100 billion should certainly go to to supporting, subsidizing the deployment of 5G as well as wired internet in rural areas. Another obvious opportunity is just around R&D. The National Science Foundation, the national labs already invest a fair bit in wireless R&D, but it certainly should be increased, especially if we're going to sort of skate to where the puck is going and try to increase our U.S. competitiveness in the provision of this wireless equipment. R&D is certainly an opportunity. Particularly, you know, as I mentioned, I think one of the exciting opportunities is around these open RAN, defining the specifications between the components in the radio access network gives us uh, opportunity to to potentially see a U.S. manufacturer for this new type of 5G equipment. And there, I think there's an opportunity with the Manufacturing USA program. This is a program administered by NIST that really brings together industry, academia, and the public sector to try to increase U.S. competitiveness for the manufacturing of technology that's uh, undergoing transition. This, This transition from traditional radio equipment to this new more openly defined, more virtualized system is a is a is exactly the type of opportunity that I think manufacturing USA program would be would be well uh, well suited to address. We should see a new institute focused on this five G or six G equipment manufacturing to bring together. We we have something of a mismatch where we have large operators looking to invest, looking for this opportunity in new new types of equipment. And then very small startups that are trying to build it. So something that could help see that sector grow would be would be fantastic. Well, thanks for being here, Doug. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you, follow your work, follow my harassing you on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Twitter, I'm at dbreakitif. And you can find all of my writing at the ITIF website, itif.org. You can sort by broadband or, or wireless, and that's where you find most of my stuff. Or just sort by you. That's true. That's true. Well, thanks again, Doug. And that is it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to subscribe and rate us. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. You can also find all of Doug's work there. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. So that's it for now. But we have more episodes and great guests coming up, including several with leading members of Congress who are driving technology policy in Congress. New episodes will drop every Monday morning, so we hope you'll tune in next week.